so not perishing is because of the result of sin, and God wants us back. So Jesus' work on the cross makes it possible for us to be back in God's glory. All right, Genesis 2, 16. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. This is God's warning to Adam. And then we have another sin that's defined in Genesis. Whoever sheds human blood by human humans shall their blood be shed. For God made humans in his image, reflecting God's very nature. And then we have adultery in Deuteronomy. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. So in Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree looked like good eating and realized what she would get out of it, she'd know everything. She took and ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband and he ate. Now I have to tell you that I have my husband proofread all of my slides so there's not a lot of typos up there. And when, you think that's when he read this one, he said, oh, that's why women are smarter than men. She'd know everything. Okay. But this is the, this follows the pattern of see, desire, and take. The knowledge of the wrong and the fear of God, the shame, the hiding, and the blame shifting begins when Adam says to, uh, went to God, it's the woman you gave me. So it's your fault, God. You gave her to me. Uh, so they seek dignity, but they're robbed of everything. All right. Then James picks us up in the New Testament. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when, by your own evil desire, you are dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So we have seed, desire, and take. Now, this is the literary construction of our two chapters. It is a Hebrew chiasm, a beautiful poem, for those of you who are just new to us. This is a Hebrew construction of a story that starts with the beginning and then each point along the way, and then it comes to the central, most important statement, and then each point after that is how that statement changed what happens next. So I'm gonna go through each point of these. So, but first I wanna just review how the Holy Spirit works today in us because it was different in David's time. But the Holy Spirit is first introduced by Jesus to us in John 14. And he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And I was going to a writing group and one of my mentors said to me, I don't see how you can pray or talk to a person that isn't there. And I thought, that's because the Holy Spirit hasn't shown you that he's there. And this tells us that. So then our next verse is um, also in the same chapter. Jesus says, 
But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. John 16, 8, Jesus says, When he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me. And then John 16, 13, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. So when you are learning truth, it's the Holy Spirit who is teaching you. And finally, Paul says in Ephesians, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And this is what is going to happen today with David. David had firsthand experience of watching Saul have the Holy Spirit, and then each time he disobeyed God, the Holy Spirit would leave him more and more. Remember, David was brought in to soothe him because he was so upset, and David saw all that happening, so he knew what it was to lose the Holy Spirit. And he would write in Psalm 51, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The sign for David of the filling of the Holy Spirit was joy. And, but unlike David, Paul tells us we are sealed no matter what we do. We will not lose the Holy Spirit, for we are sealed in him for the day of redemption. All right. So, the first part of our chiasm is David sends Joab to besiege Rabbah. Remember last week, Christina told us about what was going on. Um, David sent some of his men to the Amalekites, and they shaved half their beards and cut off their clothes so their buttocks were exposed, and this caused a war. Well, this war is still going on, and David sends Joab. Now, what is happening here is that David didn't go. So, we have to contrast David's inactivity with God's plan for activity, but he didn't do it. So, I have my own personal principle. We don't have time to sin when we are busy or in pain. And you can quote me on that. If you're in pain, if you just can't sin, I, I'm sure a lot of you have experienced that. You go through cancer, you're having a terrible time, sin is so far from you because you're hanging on to life and to Jesus every moment by moment. So anything that happens like that, where you just have to concentrate on living moment by moment, there's just no time for sin. Anyway, so David is not busy or in pain, so first we're going to see David seeing. Verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. Ta-da! You probably saw that on the film. Those of you who came late, she's missed the movie. Uh, the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So now we have verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, lust conceived. And then we have the actual sin, and he slept 
with her. And then, a few weeks later, she sends him a message. David, I am pregnant. So now, that's point two of our chiasm. Point three introduces this fact that David is going to have her husband, Uriah, killed. Okay, his first cover, verse six. David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Now, I picture this conversation between Joab and the messenger. The war is going on, <clears throat> people are fighting, people are yelling and screaming, and everything's going on, and this messenger comes up. Joab, have a message from David. Send Uriah. Uriah, one of my best soldiers, he wants Uriah. Why does he want Uriah? Well, I'm not at liberty to say, sir. Why does he want Uriah? Well, Sir Palace Gossip has it that it's a woman. Ah, says Joab, he wants Uriah. I have seen the lovely Bathsheba, I understand. So he sends Uriah to him. When Uriah comes to David, David says, How's Joab? Fine. How are the soldiers? Fine. How's the war going? Fine. Don't you hear when someone beats around the bush? But David said to Uriah, go down. I have a good idea, Uriah, while you're here. Go down to your house and wash your feet. That's a euphemism for sex, by the way. I found that out. I read the commentary. Okay, so Uriah left the palace with all his master's servants, but did not go down to his house. Uriah was a godly believer in Yahweh as well as a dedicated warrior. He's listed as one of David's mighty men in chapter 23. He's a foreigner who will put David to shame. The fact that he's a Hittite is mentioned in verse 3, 6, 17, and 24, and every time Bathsheba is mentioned, even in Matthew, which, by the way, might as well announce that's what we're going to study next year. The first chapter says Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She is always remembered that way. So David was told Uriah didn't go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Don't you want to go home? And Uriah said, well, the Ark of Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How, how can I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Uriah shows his solitary solidarity with his band of brothers and with God. David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went to sleep on his mat. Among his master's servants, he did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in front where the fighting is the fierce, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. And now we have murder. 
So lust, lust conceived, lust sin, lust murder. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And Joab sent David a full account of the battle. Now let's just remember for a minute, who is Joab? He's the son of David's sister, in charge of David's army. He has been since they were all young men. Now, he is actually David's nephew, but I imagine they were in the same age group. So they're in their 40s now. Joab killed Abner in revenge for Abner killing his brother, Asahel. David was so upset, if you remember, because I taught this, that he forced Joab to wear sackcloth and ashes and to mourn the man that he had murdered for killing his brother. So I imagine that this has played on Joab's mind a good bit. So now he sees his king doing something that he thinks is not right, and he sends him a message. He instructed the messenger, when you finish giving the king this account of the battle, King's anger may flare, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Remind him who killed Ab Abimelech, son of Jerubasheth. Didn't a woman drop another millstone on him from the wall so that she died in the beds? Why did you get so close to the wall, he asked you. Then say, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Joab is mocking David here. He compares him to Abimelech, who falls at the hand of a woman. David is going to fall at the hand of a woman because he is not fighting with Joab. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything that Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men that were powerless came out against us. We drove them back. The archers shot arrows, etc., etc. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite is dead. So David, the protector of justice, perverts justice. He is responsible not only for the death of Uriah, but for some of his trusted, faithful soldiers. David's told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. Now in Hebrew it is, don't let this be evil in your eyes. In other words, it's not really sin, Joab. Don't worry about it. David is in super denial, isn't he? Now, we have the heart of the story. The Lord is displeased with David. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It is sin and murder that elevates this to evil. And all this time, God is silent. Yet God knows and waits for David to come back to him. David knew the law, that it was death to adulterers. He knew that it was blood for blood. But David, who would not harm Saul, had put to death his own faithful soldiers to cover his guilt and lust. 
is not completely silent because we know this from the Psalms. Psalm 32 says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Psalm 51 says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. <clears throat> Wash me and I will be white as snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide my face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. David is miserable. He is sick with guilt and shame. Then the Lord sends David a messenger. The Lord sends Nathan. We have met Nathan before in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel which Kristen taught about the Davidic Covenant. If you weren't here, find that video and watch it because it's the high point, the high point of all and First and Second Samuel. The Lord sent Nathan to David. <clears throat> now, David, the last time we saw him, he was giving the covenant. And I'm just going to remind you briefly of what Christian, Kristen said. That God said to David in chapter 7, I am going to make your name great. You're going to have prominence. I am going to give you a place. You will have residency. I'm going to give you um, security. You will not be disturbed. I will give you rest. And now we begin to see he's talking about a deeper David, the son of David, Jesus Christ. I am going to give you posterity. The house of David will live forever. I'm going to give you authority, the throne of David, kingly authority. I'm going to give you paternity. I will be your father. I will have loyalty towards you. My love will never be taken away and permanence. Your throne, David, will last forever. And this is Jesus' throne. All these promises were given to David, will be fulfilled forever in his son, Jesus Christ. So now Nathan is standing in front of him, and he's going to tell him a parable. And the parable is about a man and a little lamb. And this goes right to David's childhood, right to the heart of who he really is and who he should be, a shepherd, a loving, tender shepherd. He said, there are two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And I'm picturing the young David. He finds a little lamb that was practically, or possibly, rejected by its mother. And he takes that little lamb, and he feeds it with his fingers, and he sleeps with it on his chest, like he would a newborn. And this little lamb is the dearest pet that David has. Those of you who love your cats and your dogs, you know what it is to have a pet that you love so intensely. And so David is right in this story with Nathan. His conscience is being woken up from his childhood, from the, from the past loves that he has. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking his own sheep or cattle 
to prepare a meal for the traveler who'd come. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned in anger against the man. And he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And now comes one of the most famous lines in the Bible. Nathan said, you're the man. This must have struck him to the heart. And it, it reminded me of another time when someone said, behold the man. When Pilate Show Jesus is standing there, beaten up, flogged, spit upon, the crown on his head, and he says to the people, Behold the man, echo home in the Latin. This man is going to die for the sins of the world. David, you're the man who caused that death. All of us caused that death. We are the women who caused that death. Everybody from Adam and Eve, the sin of the world, went on Jesus. Behold the man. This is what David now hears from the lips of Nathan, like hammer blows. He says, this is what the Lord has done for you. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you the house of Saul. I gave Michael, Saul's daughter, and other wives to you. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and I would have given you more if you asked for it. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his eyes. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. When we sin, we despise the Lord. Not the person we're sinning against. No, there's a deeper, there's a deeper thing there. We despise the Lord when we ignore him, when we choose against him. Now, the Ammonite sword that was a euphemistic to kill Uriah is never going to depart from David's house. And the following chapters are going to record it. Two weeks from today, remember? No women at the well next week. Two weeks from today, I'm going to teach the story of the rape, the, the rebellion, all the horrible things. Now, Christina says, oh, these are the juicy parts. But if you don't like these juicy, bloody parts, Two weeks from today, I'll have a good time to see your dentist. <laughs> so, oh, I, I forgot to lock the dog. I can't go to Women at the Well today. Okay. So you got the questions for that on your table. While you're on vacation, you can read all about the rape and murder. Okay. So now we have what is the result. David is not going to reap the fruit of his sin. The Lord strikes David's son, who dies. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. And I picture that David had loved this child, like that little lamb. The child had probably slept on his chest, and he had loved this little child, burped it, loved it, 
and now it's struck. And so David, it says he sought or searched for the Lord about his child. He fasted and spent nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. He feels that suffering of that little child, and it's his fault. The elders of his household stood beside him and tried to get him off the ground, but he refused. He wouldn't eat for them. On the seventh day, the child died. And David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was living, he wouldn't listen to us. When we spoke to him, how, how can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that they were whispering, and he guessed what it was. And he said, is the child dead? Yes. Well, then he got up. After he washed, they put things on, and he said, uh, and he went, and he ate, and he went, and he worshipped. And they, the people asked him, why, why are you acting this way? When the child was alive, you fast away, but now the child's dead, you, you get up and eat. And he answered, while the child was alive, I fasted him up. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. This phrase has comforted you don't need to raise your hand, but has this phrase ever comforted anybody in this room? Yes. Several people. The child cannot come to me, but I will go to him. Now there's peace in David's soul. So David sleeps with Bathsheba, and she becomes pregnant. She gives birth to a son, and they name him Solomon, which means peace. The Lord loved him, and the Lord says to Nathan, I'm going to have my own special name for him. I'm going to call him Jedediah, loved of the Lord. So David now goes back to being king. In our closing verse in chapter 12, 26-31, Joab sends for David to besiege and capture Rabah. So Joab was out there fighting still, and he says to David, I'm almost done. If you want credit for this war, you come finish it. So David gets his army, and he goes, and he finishes it. Well, what did we learn about God and sin in this chapter? God is relational and wants relationship with us. God hates sin because it severs that relationship. God hates sin because it severs our love for him but not his love for us. God always has grace for the repentant. Anyone who comes to God receives his grace, forgiveness, and is restored. God restores intimacy with himself, and his child, us, receives joy. God allows natural consequences for sin. God has a grace and mercy remedy for every difficulty caused by sin. 1 John 8-10 through 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How many of you have that memorized? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, say it with me. 
As you feel this burden lifted, Jesus gives you himself, his joy, for you to wear as a crown. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. 